Right, welcome everybody to a special edition of the Cast. Tonight we have a special guest, or two special guests actually. The first special guest we have is Dominic Monroe. Hi of, everyone. <laughs> an old, uh, yeah, Dominic was on season one. And a new guest, we have Ray. Hello Ray. Hello, hello Mal. Ray McDermott of Deaf and Podcast fame as seen on TV. As seen on TV, yes. <laughs> if we're counting YouTubers TV these days, we have got a few videos up there. Yeah, yeah. Well, well check out yeah. the back catalogue, guys. Yeah, yeah. Definitely, podcast is one of my favourite podcasts of all time, especially with all the closure content. It's <laughs> getting less and less by the by the episode these days. Yes, right. I've come here to talk about closure and its future. We're going to talk about Closure's Future, but we're going to talk about a special project that you've been working on, Ray, called yes. The Replacement. Do you want to introduce it and tell us <laughs> what it's about? I mean, I'm not quite sure I've got a, a fully developed pronunciation rule yet, but yeah. It's called Replacement, but it's spelled REPL-ACEMENT, because the idea is that it's going to replace all known Closure editing environments. So it's replacing Emacs, replacing VS Code, replacing IntelliJ. So before we get to how you're planning on implementing it, what was the thinking and experiences that you had that led up to this kind of idea? It's a great name. I mean, I think we brilliant <laughs> name, but is there anything more behind the name and how did you get the idea? It's basically coming from a project I've been doing for a while, which was a kind of joint REPL thing that I did for the YouTube channel that I'm involved in, Apropos, and we wanted to do some live coding. And to do that, you have to have a REPL browser-based environment at the front end so you can all share it. Then it has to connect back to a REPL at the back end. And this all worked, but there were some problems with it. And I'll, I'll go into that in a minute, why that sort of floundered. But over time, it gradually dawned on me that, in fact, you know, you could kind of evolve this idea with a few tweaks and a few changes. And sort of, you know, if your scales fall from your eyes, you could kind of see this shared REPL environment as being a bit further, you could start to persist the REPL sessions, you could start to log into it, you could start to share the code and stuff like that. And then I might start to thinking, okay, yeah, well, you know, you could do that for REPL sessions, which would be great, but could you do it for projects? Could you do it for actual code that you wanted to run as well? And that's the kind of next level thinking that I've been doing around replacement. So is this a collaborative experience that you envisage? Eventually, yes. I mean, you know, the idea is to try and make it single user to begin with, but overall collaborative has to be the way forward. Eventually it would be any kind of pairing session. It can be a kind of casual collaboration or it can be a collaboration over time as well. And that's the other thing I want to talk about is that, you know, once you've kind of got a bunch of tools that are distributed in space and time, then you can collaborate in any one of those dimensions, essentially. So what does it look like? I'm using this tool and I'm editing some closure. What's the experience? Yeah, I mean, just to be clear that this is very early days. It's just at the sort of beginning stages of the development. There's a sort of roadmap and a plan, but I can tell you what it's like now. And then I can tell you the sort of plans for how it should be looking over time. So one of the reasons or one of the problems I had with, I think it was called Reptile, the, uh, the first one, which was uh, the, uh, the idea of the shared distributed live environment. The problem there was while we were doing the show, the apropos show, we'd find that like after half an hour of shared editing, that the forms would get large, we'd suddenly be running out of memory, essentially, in the code mirror or performance out of the code mirror that was using to drive the front end. And so after you got about a couple of pages of REPL content, it became unusable fundamentally. So it was like, oh my God, this is a total nightmare. But the guy who did code mirror has rewritten it. Code Mirror 5 is now sort of legacy and Code Mirror 6 is now something which has been rewritten in a functional style, actually. He's rewritten it in, you know, he's, he's using JavaScript, but he's used a functional style to essentially have an immutable editor. And now everything can go super fast. And the people at NextJournal, Martin Kavlar especially and Matt Herbert and people like that, I'm sure I'm dropping a few names that were involved in it. But these guys have now brought it back into the closure space, put a wrapper around it for the next journal and Clark and stuff like this. I worked with Martin as well, actually, to get it working for replacement. So we can now use CodeMirror 6. And that allows you to edit the whole of Closure Core. You can just bring in any massive amounts of namespaces. And so the editing experience, the, the sort of speed, the things that people were complaining about with browsers. I'm not going to say it's as fast as Emacs or as fast as Vim or, you know, something like that. That's all subjective to some extent. But it's certainly good enough. You know, it's fast enough that you're typing into the browser window 
you're not feeling any lag occurring. So I haven't done the like full scale benchmarks on this thing, but it's from a user perspective, at least it feels fine. Yeah, mm -hmm. it feels good enough. Yeah, that's a good question. Are we going to see the end of the, you know, is the Vim Emacs war finally going to be resolved? Well, as long as there's Vim bindings. <laughs> well, of course, these are all possibilities, you know, and uh, you can make Emacs bindings and Vim bindings and Code Mirror has all these things sort of built into it already. Yeah, so, yeah absolutely. That's just key bindings, shortcuts, etc., to make it more productive. And I think there's every reason to do that. It is amazing, like how all of these browser-based code editors like in the last few years have sprung up all over the place and you would never have imagined being able to use a browser as an IDE before, but now you go to GitHub, you press dot and yeah. suddenly you've got basically a VS code in your browser. So it definitely seems much closer to the realm of possibility now than... You've been playing with an editor, is it something tip-top? Tip-tap, yeah. I mean, that's based on ProseMirror, which I guess is sort of similar to code mirror but these things are like quite difficult to manage so doing that is probably one of the more difficult front end components to make a rich text editor because they have to use the content editable api and it's pretty horrible but tip tap or prose mirror or code mirror there are lots of foundations that people can build on now that do all the funky stuff is a replacement that uses code mirror yes. and what's on, what have you added to make replacement on top of code mirror mm. well there are various things i mean CodeMirror is just a kind of an implementation on a browser. This is an important thing. For me, it's not really the fundamental aspect of replacement. I mean, it could use ProseMirror. It could use any other editing front end. The main thing we want to do is have a protocol between some backend service, like I was mentioning in the shared environment. So some backend service which can do persistence and processing of the text and processing of the data and, you know, storing it in a mutable database. I mean, if I back up a little bit, I would say that the general idea is to say, you know, where are we with closure today in terms of like web applications? You know, what's the dream closure environment? It's kind of like a closure script front end with some embedded editing like prose mirror or code mirror or, you know, whatever mirror. And then it's some Eden or transit pro data exchange over a WebSocket talking to some ring-based server or some Mali-based server or whatever, rate it, site, <laughs> to, to name drop the hosts. <laughs> so that, and, and, mistakes, right. and but that, but actually then plus something like XTDB. Yeah. So you can have essentially the code really stored in the database. And this is the thing that I'm really interested in is looking back at the work that Rich did for Codec to see how we can leverage some of those bits of thinking in the modern closure stack. Do you want to take us back and explain what Codec was about? Many of our listeners will have known who Rich Hickey is and oh, know right, a bit exactly. about closure, but yeah. what was Codec? Um, oh, Dominic, I mean, you remember Codec. Yeah, Codec was Rich's project to allow you to do analysis of closure code over time. So it was integrated with both Git and Clojure. I think there are still plans for a Codec 2 even that uses Tools Analyzer or something along those lines rather than the read-based method it uses now. But the idea was just to load a bunch of information about your code base into Datomic and allow you to start doing queries about how it's changed over time. I think there was a, I'm blanking on the name of the book now, your code base is a crime scene. I believe that was an inspiration for the codec and they were really trying to pull out data and visualizations that they could use to show the growth of your code base over time, that sort of thing. I don't know how much use it actually got. And like you said, it's a fairly unknown project mm. of his, but it is quite cool. It was cool. And if you go back and I'd suggest that the listeners do this and look at codec and look at the readme and they say, basically, you know, this is an interesting idea and it can spawn all of these potential future projects. One of which is a sort of IDE and, you know, so I think they had all the, the ideas around doing it. An interesting thing about Codec, which was kind of slightly missing from your description there, was the fact that they wanted to do something different to Git. Because the problem with Git and all these kind of text-based systems is that they're line-oriented, they're not code-oriented, mm. they're not semantic to the yeah. language. So this is another thing that I'm interested in with replacement is saying we can dispense with all of this stuff about timelines around Git because that's a boring way of viewing changes over time as far as we're concerned. What we want to see is the evolution of the function, of the var, of the namespace. So we want to have like a contextually semantic, rich environment for closure. Now, you know, I am really thinking about this as a closure first, closure only environment. Could it be eventually used for other languages? I don't know. To be honest, at this stage, I don't really care. 
But I think that that's for other people to think about because at the moment, I think it's worth considering how we can enrich the closure environment and the closure editing experience way, way, way beyond what we've got in terms of features and capabilities in the existing editors. Yeah. And sometimes when you're thinking about these hard problems, it pays to travel light. You don't want to have the burden of saying, well, let's do this for every language or for all the mainstream languages because yes. some of the languages don't lend themselves in their design to this kind of approach. No, but I think once we get a protocol, an ability to turn code into data, and this is the other thing that I'm doing, by the way, if I go back to Codec and stuff like this and, and projects like that, there was another project around about that time in the editing space called Light Table. And there's a very famous closurian called Chris Granger that did all this and they even got some money for it, but it kind of died on the rocks because they ended up trying to like broaden scope to lots of languages and so yeah, that kind of like project, you know, wah, wah, it, it did actually end up on the rocks because it sort of grew a bit topsy, it, the scope grew too much. But also I think the sort of technology that's lying on the ground today is much more powerful in the closure world than it was 10 years ago. It was like a huge mountain to climb, you know, and I think in general, the idea of sort of building an IDE, something like Cursive or VS Code, you know, it seems like the enterprise of a huge company. It feels like a hundred developers kind of project, but I don't think that's true for Clojure anymore. I'm kind of already in the business of making a UI and I can make a network protocol and I've got all the stuff from you guys, thankfully, to make a database and persistence layer. So, you know, you can kind of get a lot of the stuff, not exactly for free, you have to make some insights for this to happen. But once you have some of these insights and, you know, and working on the insights of the previous people, you know, like Chris Granger, like Rich Hickey, then it's a bit easier, you know, because you're picking up these ideas. A bit like people are doing from the 1980s, like you're doing with temporal databases. Some things that weren't possible in the 1980s now become possible because we've got more storage, we've got faster computers, blah, blah, blah. Likewise, you know, Clojure is more than 10 years old. And some of the things that are achievable now in the ecosystem are much more powerful than the things that are achievable, you know, even faster. Five years ago. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think it's interesting to bring back this idea of a REPL because if you're a closure programmer, you know instinctively what that experience means. And it's very difficult to explain to somebody who's not used to kind of the instant feedback or the tactile environment of working with computing that a REPL gives you. If you're somebody who might be working in DevOps and they're used to a feedback loop of minutes or half an hour, you know, to work with a kind of evolutionary environment where you have ideas and you can see the results of those ideas. I mean, even today, I'm demonstrating something in sight to Alex and something wasn't working. And um, I thought, oh, why is it not working? So I had left this death in my, you know, in my code somewhere. I'd, I just kind of got the request and I was able to dive into the request and find out what the name of the key was and sort of play around with it all live, right? And something that just cannot be done in other programming environments. And I really like the idea of being able to see, even kind of what I've done in the last session, that Git that forces you to sort of stamp kind of, oh, I'm ready now, I'm going to back up, stroke, commit, stroke, kind of push my changes. You get in this sort of flow where you're only giving people a snapshot of what you were doing and you don't get them that continuous sort of recording of seeing yes. your thought yes. patterns almost and allowing people to inhabit that and be part of that thought process and see it live. This idea of, well, we would call it separating code from time. You're kind yes. of untangling those two things. You know, Rich talks about place-oriented programming. And that, in a way, it's the place that we talk about is the Git repository. And even though we have a history and we kind of, right. you know, we don't have that continuum the REPL experience gives us. Yeah, I think there's two ways of looking at this. Obviously, there's the way of looking at code over history. If you've got a namespace or something like that, then you know, that's some evolution of code that's existing in that namespace. And you want to be able to track that and bugs, et cetera. But you're right, there is a sort of the session, you know, and there's every reason to keep that session. And again, you could imagine we're just scratching the surface of these things at the moment, you know. Is there innovation around like keeping that session around? Can you use that session as a learning mechanism, as a playback, as a testing tool? There's all sorts of possibilities here, which, you know, I frankly admit that I've not explored, but I perceive it to be something which is potentially of interest. The other thing that's really interesting to me as well is not going around this sort of thinking about tools namespace and stuff like that, which is kind of interesting. But I feel like the problem with tools namespace is that it's kind of like it's parsing strings, as it were. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to go that way because I look at the tools that are in Clojure now and I see that there are mechanisms to conform data and there are ways to conform Clojure itself. For our listeners, do you uh, want to explain? 
you know, kind of expand oh, right, okay. what conform means. Right, okay. So yeah, back it up to spec, basically. Yes. <laughs> and you might want to explain what spec is. So, okay. Uh, maybe, it's, maybe it's Dominic can do that, actually. Give me a break. <laughs> He's the technical one. <laughs> You're going to have to give me a moment while I... Uh, I'm mentally just processing all of your complaints now about how spec conformers aren't bidirectional in core. And now I understand why you were so upset about that. Um, <laughs> but I've got, I've got them that they are now, so it's okay. <laughs> so is there a minimum version on, uh, on your tool of like closure 111 because the specs are outdated no, no, or are you no, using no, no, third-party no. specs? No, they're patched, sorry. But, okay. Yeah. okay. Mon monkey but backing, patched or backing, core patched? Backing up, uh, monkey patched, I'm afraid, yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, backing up a little bit, let's talk about spec. <laughs> yeah. What's that, how is that lying on the ground? That's a loaded question, isn't it? So how many years are we going back now with the release of Spec Alpha? Um, it's about five years, I think. Mm. Really, Five years. So five years ago, Core decided that they wanted to take on validation as a problem. I think in particular, macros are of a pretty high concern around making sure macros are receiving data in the right shape. But obviously, validation is general purpose. You can put it anywhere. One of the big ideas behind it was that code is already data. So we don't need to have datafied specs. So like Plumatic Schema had done before, where your schemas were maps and you could merge them and association, well, we've already got data structures. And by doing that, we get full access to predicates. If any of you have ever used Schema and tried to wrap a custom thing so you get a nice message out and all of that stuff, you know the mess that is all of those protocols underneath and how horrible it can be to integrate with. Spec said, we're not going to deal with any of that. What we're going to do is just say, predicates in, that's the whole system. So yeah, Spec is a validation library. It's still in alpha. A couple of years ago now, Rich did a big talk about the potential for Spec 2, which I believe had a little bit of attention on it. I think stalled out recently, but I don't think that means it's done. It's just still incubating. I guess we need to cover what a conformer is, don't we? It's one of those complicated parts of Spec. So a conformer, it's a thing that you're not supposed to use in Spec for the most part, for starters. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> I don't think you can say that. I think anything that's in Spec is usable. So I don't accept you're not supposed to use it. When, when I say you're I, not I mean, supposed that, to. Just, I'm sorry to interrupt your uh, narrative there. No, it's good. I mean, it clarifies what I'm saying, which is I think it's often abused for things that it shouldn't be abused for. So there was a lot of use of conformers to do coercion. So people were trying to use them to automatically... What, what does a conformer do then? What is a conformer? It allows you to transform the data in some way as part of the validation process. I think the main thing about conformance is that you put some Eden into it and it conforms it into data. I think that's the yeah. major difference is that Eden or syntax, especially code syntax, mm -hmm. is a different that's form true, of yeah. Eden yeah. to yeah. the actual maps. So that's what conforming... So if I have a, a, a string with a number in it and yeah. the spec says that thing has to be an integer, then a conformer can so, turn so the this string... this is the time you're not supposed... This is what if people do with conformers. This is why you're not supposed to use conformers. Well, I won't do that then. Don't, don't do that. And why, why not? Why is that? Because bad? you start running into problems. I want to distinguish these two values, whether it's actually a string that's been turned into a number or if it's actually a number at different parts of your application. And there's no way to do that because the conforming process is fully automatic. Uh, and you start getting into problems with like, this key can sometimes be a string and be valid on the way in. Like I've checked that it's valid. When I ink it, it's supposed to be a number. Why am I getting an exception about type error string? It was because a string is perfectly valid there because of the way you've written the conformer. But it's worth saying that a conformer operates on a spec. Yes. Um, so it's not independent. You yeah. write a spec, and then you basically ask whether a particular input conforms or you use mm -hmm. input that is matching the spec to conform it. It gives you back essentially a conformed version of that data. But the conformers also run as part of the validation process. So I believe the main use cases in spec itself are actually very different from where people actually took conformers. The main thing it's used for in spec itself is when you expand out an or, you name the different branches. And also there's another main case as well. So there's a couple of uses like that where they're really expanding out the data to explain it. And this is where I think you are using conformers for is as a parsing mechanism to get yes. the named areas out rather than as a coercion mechanism. Yes, so when I say yes, you're not yes. supposed to use conformers, what I mean is don't use them for coercion. You probably don't need custom conformers. They are there for the rare cases that you do, but very rarely 
but I believe Ray is in the green here because he's, he's he's seen Alex <laughs> Muller's warnings on Slack. I, I know that you're aware of all this. No, no, but I mean, I think it's, you know, a lot of these things is worth like looking at, like you said, the green path and the idea of conforming stuff. Actually, I watched a talk by David Nolan about this, about how spec could basically be used to reinterpret ClojureScript. So, you know, this is not something which is a novel idea of mine. Yeah. But the other thing that's interesting about it, there is a corollary to conform, which is you can take a need and form like a defn or a def or a, a let or whatever, and you can ask it to conform to a spec. These things are spec'd out by the core team as well. So they're not my specs. These are specs that Alex and Rich and Stuart, they've made them and they maintain them. So the idea is that I will take some closure code and ask it to conform against the spec that they've written. And what that does is it produces a map, essentially. It produces real data. So it's not just like, this is sort of, uh, what should we say? This is kind of legend or a myth that we were talking about at the beginning there, where code is data, data is code. Well, it isn't kind of really. But with spec and conforming, it actually becomes real data. It becomes manageable. It becomes data that you can manipulate. And why is that interesting? Is that there's another part to spec. So you can conform it out to data, but you can take that data and unform it, which is a weird word, because you're actually reforming it, in my opinion, but it doesn't matter. Naming is hard. So, you know, it's like, so you unform that data back into Eden, back into an actual executable bit of closure. And this is interesting because it gives you some sort of space in between those two activities. In between the conform, where you get data, you can now manipulate that data, use all your kind of closure skills to change that data any way you wish. You could do aspect-oriented programming. You can add print learn, you can add a tap, you could change the name of the variables, you could do all kinds of refactoring. And then as long as you give back something which will be unformable, essentially, then you're all good. You've honored the contract, essentially. The contract is the spec of def or defn or let or whatever. So that's nice, isn't it? Because you can really treat it as data and use all standard sort of closure data manipulation tooling on your code. And that was the original promise of Lisp, I guess, when you were trying to explain the advantages of Lisp to a C programmer, because you would say, well, in languages like C, you have to compile it to this abstract syntax tree, right. AST, and then the compiler would then manipulate that AST and be able to transform it into you know, object code, machine code, and often not be able to go the other way around. I mean, I suppose an AST was really just the compile tree, and you could probably you know, walk the tree and produce the code again. But the, the abstract tree is not available to developers. That's the problem. It's yeah. a hidden value. That's one of the wonders of these technologies, isn't it? It's no longer kind of a second-class citizen. Yeah, the programmer gets to deal with the source code, but the programmer doesn't get to influence the compiler. And then even if they could, it's a one-way transformation generally. Yeah, if you think about how AOP works in Java, for example, people typically, you know, the aspect J and things like this is they use like bytecode manipulations. They either put proxies in front of them or they do other kinds of things to alter the behavior. So they haven't got the ability to literally alter the code. Mm. Now, I'm not saying that AOP is, is, is the only use case for this or the best use case for it or that it's even legitimate. But I'm just saying that having code as truly manipulatable data is a useful mm. quality, I think. Even from a data storage perspective, it makes it interesting because if you can break down your code into actual data, then it makes storing it as a document something which is really kind of useful, explorable, searchable, and indexable, and all these kind of things. You know. Right. So as a data structure, if I've got a function and I make a change to that, I can then diff that change. I or it can express that in data. I can compose that data. I can, I can transform it and play around with it and analyze it. Exactly you can really see it, whereas it's difficult to explore Eden, you know, mm. and it's difficult to explore it as a sort of, well, what is this Eden? Defn has a special meaning. And again, like going back to Codec, the reason why Rich was interested in doing that was because you wanted something which is semantically aware. So you can do that with Coda's data. You can literally add on all kinds of tooling around that data or interpreting that data that you couldn't do with just plain Eden. You'd have to interpret it using something like tools. Now, tools namespace in the end has to bottom out to something like this. Yeah. You know, my perspective of it to the people that are doing all the tools namespace work, and it's really great work for all this like, you know, linters and parsers and stuff. It's a bit of a shame that we're not using a canonical mechanism to get the code into data. Now, you know, the core specs aren't as perfect as they could be, and they don't have all the information or the metadata. But I think for me, using these specs as a way to get things into data and then use these kind of intelligent tools around what the data is, that would be a good place to start putting those tools rather than actually reading the Eden as such.
Yeah, I think actually one of the exciting things to me listening to this is, I think mentioned it earlier, but diffing code instead of GitHub and having a PR or using Git and you get this sort of line wise diff of the old file and the new file and you have to work out what's actually changed and what's just sort of been re-indented or like, <laughs> you know, for example, if someone's taken a function and they've added like another arity to it. Um, yes. So now it's a two arity function because they've had to like insert an extra pair of parentheses, then the whole thing is just sort of a big blob of green and red. Whereas if you had this code as data, maybe you could even come up with a description, like a, a textual description of a diff. And it says, you know, change the arity of the function foo to be two arities. And then absolutely, absolutely. That, that would be really, really cool if you could then have like on your phone, you get a notification, someone made a PR and they changed, they, you know, they, <laughs> they renamed a load of functions, but they didn't actually change any code. And you can go, okay, well, whatever, you know, approve, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> go to the pub early. But. Another thing that's come up recently for me which says file systems make lousy databases. And so what we're talking about here is what would a database for a code base look like if we want to store it in a data and be able to mm -hmm. query it and manipulate it and things as we can databases, whereas file systems are just like, hey, this is my file, and then I can break my file into lines, but that's kind of it. And then mm -hmm. Git works on that. We've been talking about, I don't want to keep talking about the project site, but the, <laughs> the project site has a similar view that file systems make pretty lousy document stores for web servers, right? So when you store a file like index underscore fr.html, the HTML kind of indicates as a clue that it's a media type called text HTML. And there, there might be a byte order mark in the thing that indicates it's in UTF-8, maybe. And then there might be the underscore fr that indicates that it's in French. But it, these are all heuristic clues and sort of hacks because the file system itself cannot be a sufficient or satisfactory repository for the metadata that you need to store. So you need to hack it in some way. It seems it's an impoverished be, environment. Basically. It's an impoverished environment. And it seems like that more and more we did decide to standardize on file systems some time ago. Yeah. And mm -hmm. the Unix operating system is built on this whole notion of everything being a file. Yes. And, and maybe that was a misstep. And the success of the file system has actually led to a uh, local maxima, a cul-de-sac that mm -hmm. we find ourselves in. I mean, the way I think about it is that it's fine for things to be files, but like you say, not everything. It's clear with rich data. Forgetting the closure world for a moment, if you look at JSON, it just doesn't work with pipes. In the past, if you were looking at data, you'd have like LAN-oriented data, you'd have CV, comma-separated values, you'd have the mainframe kind of like Unix over the 80s and 90s and even 2000s, I guess. You know, you'd have everything as LAN-oriented with, with, you know, carriage return, line feeds, etc. And that was, it was all fine. And you could use Unix tools around those things because they were all oriented around that as well. So it wasn't just about things being files. It was about the notion of pipes and sockets accepting line-oriented files. And to Alex's point earlier, this is not the world we're living in anymore. We're living in a sort of rich data world, which has, you know, maps, arrays, numbers, and strings, and they can go on different lines, and they can be rearranged arbitrarily. That's fine. It's no problem, because the idea is that the interpreter is an interpreter of that data. You know, it's not some random interpreter. Maybe it's a callback to Alan Kay, if you like, you know, that you send an ambassador. So you do need some kind of interpreter of this data, and whether it be an Eden parser or a JSON parser or whatever. These things just don't work anymore. You can look at JQ, I and mean, JQ is not a command line tool, in my opinion. It's pretending to be one. It's got flags and stuff, but, you know, you, you can't really be an honest broker about that and say, yeah, that's a command line tool. It's just like every other command line tool. No, it's not. So I think the gig is up, you know, the jig is up, whatever people say. Uh, and uh, so I think we have to think about proper data, not just this line-oriented yeah, stuff. Yeah, line-oriented is great because it's vanilla. You're going to code lots of stuff in mm. line-oriented files. You can save everything almost apart from binaries. But, you, you know, that that is the strength, certainly in the Unix file system, strength that you can do a lot with just one level of nesting, you know, or one level of you know, granularity. A file has many lines. But the problem is you don't have the recursion, you know, a line. I mean, that's it. That's the leaf. You don't have maybe it. I, maybe I should just, oh, sorry, go on, Alex. No, I was just going to say, it's just like, you know, having a key value store as your database and it's very convenient and easy to use, but then sometimes data is more than just keys <laughs> and values. And... Yeah, the values are actually interesting as well. <laughs> yeah. You want to look yeah. into the values and not just have a blob, because that's what in key value storage end up being, isn't it? Mm. It's just like a bunch of blobs and then if you go to these key value databases and you end up indexing into those blobs. Mm. Yes. <laughs> Anyway, uh, what I was going to say, the other thing I was going to say was about editing. 
you know, to your point about diffs and stuff like that, is you want to be able to have an editor. And I know this is very annoying to people who use Vim and Emacs, but you want a graphical editor. And I also think that VS Code, by the you way, you want a graphical editor. I want a graphical editor. <laughs> I, think, I think the world wants a graphical editor. I'm prepared to. I'm prepared except to. You Dominic. Know. <laughs> yeah. I, well, I'm prepared to accept that there's a few, <laughs> few people that don't. But you know, I think a lot of people do want a visualization of the, around their code. They want all kinds of like tips and tools. And you know, a lot of people don't. I mean, you know, they're experts, and you can always turn that stuff down. But the problem with the kind of line-based editors, you know, disparagingly called mainframe editors that we have now, is that they don't have that ability to turn things up. They can't turn on a rich environment. They can't turn on like, images. They can't turn on alt texts or graphics. And everything that they do is kind of uh, pretense at that. So I think with the browser, you have a huge amount of capabilities, most of which are not being used for our development environment yet. So I think that selfishly, you know, at least for me, as maybe he's a, not a great programmer, and I would like more help from my environment, I'd like more visual assistance to see what's going on, rather than just like playing computer all the time. I'd like the computer to do a bit more work, to explain things a bit better, and to show more uh, obviously and more evidently how things are. And also I want to embed kind of training materials, images, videos, all these kind of things into that kind of editing experience that is almost impossible to do inside of any of these editors. Yeah. And if you look at like the early web, I mean, the early web was all just sort of plain documents and you read yeah. it and that's basically it. And nowadays you look at the web and there's like these full blown applications. You hover over something, something else pops up or you like use your keyboard to navigate and you've got Kanbans and video editors and all this sort of crazy application stuff in the browser. And, and I think the same thing could definitely happen with editors. I was going to point out that sometimes I kind of hark back to, well, you know, when I started using Emacs, it was 1.18. And when it goes up to, I think it was 1.28 now. So I think, oh, you know, that's progress. But <laughs> then I started using Emacs in 1991. And I think, does that actually point to the strength of the idea, the power of the idea of the file in the line? Or does that really reflect the stagnation in the industry that we find ourselves in? Well, I think what you were saying earlier on, you know, when we, were, when we were out earlier on, was that the heart of Emacs was Lisp. You know, it's the ability to essentially hack on the editor. And I think that idea is something I don't want to give up on. You know, I definitely want to have something which can be in any browser, and you know, you can have any front end, you can evolve the front end, it can be completely hackable, because again, it should be data, and it should be a code editor of some type. The fundamental unit of the code is some data, is some text, essentially. Closure is essentially a text-based environment, so we are going to be editing text. I'm not going to try and deny that. And I'm not trying to invent a new language. I'm not trying to say that we should use something like Unison or something like that. Although I will say that they have a good idea in terms of granting identities to VARs and to functions and to DEFs and stuff like this. And I want to carry that forward. So I think it would be a really good idea to have UUIDs or some kind of synthetic identity for a function so you can track it in a database like XT, for example as well as looking at the Git Merkle tree stuff so you can find, you know, hash, recursive hashes of functions and namespaces, which again, funnily enough, Git doesn't do this. Git stops at the file level, mm. you know, Git sort of Merkleizes files, but it doesn't know anything underneath it. It can't Merkleize functions, for example. It can't Merkleize vars or stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, we, you talked about code, but we also see this in documentation because a lot yeah. of the documentation we write in Jux is Markdown. And it's very frustrating the way you want to make a reference to a paragraph and that paragraph moves and you want to be able to do cross-references and sort of track histories and what you wrote. And often you want to quote something. Now, when you quote something, you copy what the person wrote from their document. And if that document changes, you just, you know, you're stale. The opportunity to bring documentation or knowledge to this as well is huge. Yeah, I mean, that's what Notion and Rome and all these people have been doing with basically turning text documents into the database and having them all be documents in a graph database, mm. like some data log thing. Yeah, we, I mean, we said before, Alex, I mean, you, yeah. you, you know, if we move. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean. And the, then the change point, to Postgres, yeah. yeah. But the point is that you can do the same kind of thing. I mean, you know, and the people at NextJournal are doing this for Clark. They're starting to do this in terms of the editing experience. But I want to take it a bit further and make the whole editor like that. Maybe I should ask my own question because <laughs> how, are gonna do it, how are you going to do it? How's it done? Yeah, exactly. How are you going to do it? What's, what's happening? It's almost like you host podcasts. 
I just think it's drying up, so I'll just ask some questions to myself. You know? <laughs> no, then. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it's definitely a bit of a hobby at the moment, and it's going to remain like that. But I started up talking to various people online about it, and some people are quite interested about it. We've got a little Discord channel going, but after a sort of initial excitement, to be honest, it's kind of like, you know, the embers are sort of just glowing in the distance. But I think that's partly because I ended up on a Discord channel. And why did I go to a Discord server? It's because like this closure in Slack was so unreliable, blah, blah, blah. But now the closure in Slack is kind of on the pro plan and it looks like it's going to be staying that way for a while. I might come back to the Slack world and start to sort of invite more people. And obviously the back of this podcast, it would be interesting to see if more people are interested in joining the project. So I'll start up a channel there and... You know, I'm doing some bits and pieces on it to make it a viable, like kind of top to bottom proof of concept of this stuff. I've already tweeted a few things about how the editor works, but I'm now in the throes of making that persistence in reframe. And also I'm going to make that persistence against a remote database. So that's what I'm planning in the next like month or two. And then in June, I'm going to do a workshop at Closure D all about replacement. So this is kind of like announcement of that, actually. So thank you very much for this opportunity. <laughs> you know. So that would be good. So one of the things I'll be looking at is to get volunteers for that workshop to hopefully help to gain some enthusiasm about the concept and maybe to take it up to a few more contributors and get some more people involved. We've covered a lot of the concepts underneath the implementation. <laughs> Yeah. What can I do with your editor other than just like mash on Code Mirror today? You know, that I nothing. Do with <laughs> nothing. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. <laughs> um, this is uh, this is like this is in the sort of primordial swamp at this moment. You know, so you can't do anything. I, mean, I can't do anything. <laughs> I think I'd like to applaud Ray for challenging conventional wisdom and challenging these very kind of received wisdom that you can't build another editor because it just takes too long. It's like, there's a lot of things like you can't build a database, you can't build a broker. I mean, these things are just too complicated. And there's a kind of palpable lack of ambition that has arisen in the industry for, you know, I don't know, for a long time. There was definitely, a, I think, time in the 90s where it just felt Microsoft had sewn everything up. Everything was going yes. to be Microsoft. And we kind of broke out of that resurrected Unix or, you know, Linux came along and it challenged that. But I, I think that challenging the status quo, challenging the received wisdom and trying new things, being aware of what's happened before, but then sometimes some ideas of the past, they just didn't work because their time wasn't right. And we talk about, you know, yeah. that like bitemporality. We say, you know, bitemporality is an absolutely core and essential idea. And the reason why people don't talk about it is because the time to implement by temporality, just, you know, the resources and the technology just wasn't ready mm. for that idea, but the idea is important nonetheless. Do you think about that, you, you know, in terms of where we are in, in the industry, what other kind of sacred cows are there to challenge? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm uh, generically kind of down on a lot of things the industry is doing. I think we're going in, a, in many ways the wrong direction, especially things like the cloud. I think it's a complete disaster for, um, for civilization, if I'm totally honest, because I think the idea of a few small companies owning all of our technical infrastructure is an absolute disaster for humanity. So, you know, I could go that far mm -hmm. and I'll call names, you know, Google and Amazon, as far as I'm concerned, are, you know, a bad, I'm not saying that the people who work there are bad at all, but I think it's a bad outcome where we've got so few providers of these kind of solutions. And it's becoming more and more difficult to escape them. It's like a kind of gravitational pull towards these environments. If we talk about sacred cows, there's a lot of gaslighting, even amongst ourselves, around that these things aren't too bad or these things are solving our problems for us. They're making things easier for us. Yeah, maybe, but I think that's gaslighting. I think they're not making things easier for us. I think they're making things easier for themselves. And we happen to come along for the ride. Now, I'm not saying it's going to be easy to get out of this situation, but I see a lot of companies, smaller companies that are rising up to do bare metal servicing, to look at network provisioning, peer-to-peer -peer networking. And we spoke earlier about the fact that a lot of peer-to-peer -peer networking is problematic due to ISP infrastructure. So I'm not saying that these things are easy to change, but I definitely think there's a lot of stuff in the industry that's going in the wrong way. Mm. I also think, by the way, that... On the other side, things like blockchain and cryptocurrencies are a good thing. Now, I'm not saying that Bitcoin is a good thing or Ethereum is a good thing because they burn up the planet. And of course, that's dumb. There are better ways of proving that you've got some investment in your coin. 
than burning up energy and fossil fuels or whatever fuels. You know, I think that's pretty crazy. But a lot of the concepts around cryptocurrencies, around decentralization and around smart contracts are going to be something that could potentially rescue us from this centralizing environment that we're stuck in right now. Mm. I mean, I, I agree. There are things where you have monopolies and given that it's late at night and we're all having a rant, you, you, know, <laughs> I, you know, looking at Microsoft Office and what Microsoft did to create and maintain that monopoly, even to the point of settling some kind of court cases by offering to donate their you know products to schools and kind of train it. And I've been into schools and I've seen that kids are being trained on the same technology that hasn't changed in 30 years. Now, if you think about the changes in technology in our lives that 30 years, you know, this is going back before the internet, you think about the innovation, right? And then you just go to some organizations where there has been no palpable improvement in their computing experience for 30 years. And that's a staggering waste. And for what benefit, right? The pockets of a large multinational company, you know, in Seattle, Redmond. And this will happen with the cloud, right? That we will kind of stagnate on the same, you know, we'll have, you know, object stores, Elastic, S3 and things. But in 30 years time, everyone will be tied into this mode of operating, but nothing new can come along because it will just be closed out. Yes, exactly. Sorry, Dominic, I could rant all night, but <laughs> I don't want to do that. I'm, I'm trying to talk about replacement, not about these things. <laughs> so Dominic, you can have a rant now. <laughs> what are you upset about? My rant is very similar to Malcolm's as well, in that I feel like as technologists, we've let humanity down. Mm. Even through the COVID situation, I've got a neighbor, he's got a site problem, and he couldn't even see the homework he was being sent, mm. let alone the fact that however many people didn't manage to get an internet connection, didn't manage to get a device, didn't manage to get online to do their education through the lockdown, because the local councils were sourcing it from major companies. And we've got British National even, Raspberry Pi, you can get a mm. computer for £99, less than that, plug it into your TV at home, and you're good to go. And we're worrying about we don't have enough money to send these kids computers and the price of computing is coming down and yet yeah. we're unable to supply. We're, we're awesome failing point. as technologists. Yeah. And I see this all throughout levels of society in the way that we've built a system that encourages our family's user data to end up in the hands of one company, Facebook, will then manipulate them to absolutely no end. Right. You know, we see our family members getting scammed because of insufficient protections on these platforms. We see them buying things that they wouldn't normally buy. The Facebook scandal that always stands out in my mind is when they're allowing advertisers to target depressed teenage girls. Mm -hmm. you know, that's a very vulnerable group. Mm. And, you know, and we've enabled this as technologists. I just think basically big companies bad. That's our stance <laughs> today, right? Is, yeah. I don't want to say that big companies are always bad or that people that work in them are always bad. No, but yeah, yeah. I think part of it, to be totally honest, is about the subjugation of governments. And I think the governments themselves have somehow felt like they can't control things. And the American government is not regulating the industry mm. anymore. You know, I understand that Silicon Valley don't want regulation. That's natural. A lot of companies and a lot of environments don't want regulation. But at a certain point, they become a public utility, like you say. They become so universal that you need regulation. I'm not saying you should shut them down, but you need to make them put their feet to the fire in terms of their ethical behavior and their ethical standards. There's a gentleman called Nick Clegg that used to be in government with David Cameron as a, a spineless person, if ever there was one who's in charge of ethics, essentially, at Facebook. I mean, you know, this guy is, uh, he hasn't got an ethical bond in his body. So, you know, it's kind of bizarre to me that, that these people are now, you know, it's a, an Orwellian present, in fact, not an Orwellian future. So I think the governments do have a role to play. The EU is... GDPR you know, is fantastic. Well, you know, there's all sorts of small arguments about it, but the point is they're asserting their ability yeah. to regulate the environment, and that is a powerful thing. And it's starting to happen in California as well now. Mm -hmm. And I know that there are some justices, some people involved in the FTCA in America. So there have been some good appointments recently. But it takes a long time for the governments to regulate these corporations. And these corporations have got huge sums to throw at the lobbying machine. To me, that's one of the huge problems is that, you know, when we were talking about this earlier, this like conflation of the law, politics and technology to sort of coalescing into a single thing. And we have to start dealing with it as citizens, not just as technologists. On that bombshell. Yeah. <laughs> well, I am curious to see if I can use it. I've had this idea for a while around, we organize our code bases into files and there's always arguments about, well, how do you structure your namespaces in Clojure? 
we argue over how we're going to organize our functions into namespaces and do you have a controllers and models namespace you know do we do mvc or you know logical domains or whatever and i think the real answer is it depends on what you're doing if you're a database admin you actually do really like those models files because you can rock up and you can say okay what's querying the database how is it querying the database why have i got this really slow query running and you can make adjustments so you want a very specific view of your code base, which is I want to see all the model functions or I want to see all the places that interact with the database. But when you're an application developer looking at registration or authentication, you just want to live in that world, in that folder of authentication. But you can't have both views. They sort of live independently. If you've got data, all your vars are in a database, you can do a query and sort of produce a false file, essentially, mm. and say, these are all the models or here's all the places you call a JDBC query. And you create mm -hmm. tailored views depending on the work you're doing. Yeah, we have one hierarchy in code and everything else yeah. is called a cross-cutting concern. Yeah. Mm -hmm. we don't really... And we build principles around it. We say, this is a single <laughs> responsibility principle and this is one responsibility for this namespace. We've built a whole world of rules around how we structure our code. And I think it misses the point, which is that the human element is important. It's what you're trying to achieve in that moment is what matters. And that's what replacement, if it's datifying all your code, it has this opportunity to start doing. Well, I think that's exactly right. Definitely the idea is that it should be an open environment to do queries on. In fact, that's mm. one of the most important aspects of the project for sure. There's a conference coming up that Jeremy's talking about called Have You Tried Rubbing a Database <laughs> on It? <laughs> we talked about really the move from the power of the database vis-a-vis -vis the power of the file system and how maybe the file system has had its day. This is just one example of mm -hmm. where we're trying to think about database techniques applied to, in this case, coding. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it, it's data and then you have databases. I, mean, I think you know, first we have to get to the data. Databases yeah. are better than code bases. <laughs> well, maybe databases are the new code bases. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I think that could be a way of looking at it. I know you're wrapping up, but I want to just go back to something that I remember from Codec, which is important. Typically, when you're editing code, you tend to have a repository view of things. Mm -hmm. You tend to think of things like, oh, and I'm looking at my repository, and I've got a repository for this and for that, and I've got dependencies on this, and I've got dependencies mm -hmm. on that. But all of these kind of things are essentially, they're all a contribution to your project. I think replacement should be looking at the project and not caring about the dependencies or things like that. It should be looking at, well, what is actually on my class path? What is usable by me? And by the way, that's another thing that Rich talked about a long time ago with things like version management and tree shaking and stuff like this. And I know that this is something that Graal VM does is it gets rid of classes and stuff like this. And it's something, again, which once you've got data, once you've got an ability to understand what your application is actually composed of, you can just dispense with all the stuff that's not touched. So you can get a perfect view of your application and not think about it as separated into 15 different repositories. So I think that's another important aspect of thinking about things in a kind of holistic model rather than a sort of sharded, fragmented, you know. But then, like Dominic says, you can build up perspectives on those things mm -hmm. because you're, it's a completely open set. Yeah, I guess the one other, you know, ranting is the waste in the industry. I connect to this point about Richard Key's, you talk about version management and the idea of going directly to the code function and the version of the code function rather than the version of the jar file or, or the project repository that the jar file was created in or, or something. Now, people don't know the origin of the jar file and jar file is an archive in the, the Java language. The origin of a jar file was when we used to write applets. When Java came out, you would compile Java to classes. And the way the web worked then was that you had to load each class off the network individually. And in those days, you didn't have a thing called keep alive in HTTP. So that would be a new connection. So what would happen is that you would be waiting for your super applet and, you know, you deploy the thing to the website and you'd be waiting half an hour for the applet to load. It would have this, you know, latterly it had this kind of nice Java logo, but, you know, before it was just a blank gray screen. There was no network tab. You couldn't see what was going on. It was very frustrating for people. And then there was an optimization that Sun kind of invented, which was, oh, hey, well, if we just somehow use the tar archive format, that's why jar is zip. basically the tar. Zip. Well, it is zip, but it, the command line comes from the tar. But the idea, you know, that's why the flags are the same, tar, cvf, jar, C, you know. That's, right. But the idea was put all the classes in a tar file, and we'll call it jar because we can then put some metadata on there for the version things but that's where the jar came from so it was there to solve 
not a codependency problem. It was, you know, in those days, you like chuck files all over the yeah, place. You didn't yeah. know Git, right? It was there to solve a very temporary problem, which was a perfect storm of very, very slow networks and you know, the problem of applets and loading all the classes individually, right? Which any of those would have been solved by loading classes over, you know, keep alive or, you know, pipelining or server push or, you know, any one of those. But no, they decided jars. So then from that point, everything was then copied and pasted wastefully. And everything was then packed into these large containers. And then a small amount of waste is then multiplied until you've got these kind of vast class paths that you're only using 0.0001%. That's really the story of the industry. And I joke with my son about how computers have got slower over the years. You know, they used to be really fast. It used to be the way you want to play a computer game. You took a cartridge, you chucked it into your Atari, you turned it on, and you played the game. Now you have to wait two minutes, flight simulator load, to load this, or get online and you turn your computer on and it's, oh, I've got a Windows update. I've got to wait half an hour. You know, every generation of console that comes out is that much slower than the previous. And what a horrible thing it must be to, you know, be a gamer today, the amount of time you have to waste. This theme that the industry, that actually the waste in the software world has always overtaken the efficiencies of the hardware world, mm. which is a bit of a joke, but it's just actually death by a thousand cuts. It's just yeah. these poor engineering decisions that add up and multiply that mean that everything is so slow. How slow some websites are. It's yeah. just... And then there are these people who are putting editors into their websites, <laughs> making them really slow. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I would say, I mean, you know, in defense of me, <laughs> is, that, <laughs> is that I think quality of life should improve, but not through waste. So, you know, I think there are certainly things that can get better. There is so much waste. It's incredible. I think just in defense of the front end, in the last couple of years, especially, people have started to notice. I think that React came along in 2012 or maybe a bit before that, and then at the height of its popularity, like 2014, 15, that's when all of these websites were just so bloated and you would download 10 megabytes for your, you know, your doctor's surgery booking form or, or whatever. And I think in the last few years, like you've seen big frameworks like Next.js run by Vercel and all of their features on their new versions. We improved our build times, you know, we rewrote our compiler in this Rust-based thing or whatever. And speed does seem to be a lot more important and efficiency and Hopefully, in terms of the general computing sphere with the ever-increasing climate threat and that sort of thing, people are taking it a lot more seriously and the government is hopefully introducing more rules so that you know, people aren't just mining bitcoins all the time. But maybe I'm being too optimistic there. No, I think this is one of the upsides of stagnation, right? Is that as you start to get stability, you can start optimizing around that stable base that you have. That's why we have incredibly efficient JSON and HTML passes. Because it's everywhere. It has been for what, three decades now, at least. So it's worth optimizing. And the same thing for Vim and Emacs, whereas mm. Atom has been heavily criticized. Yeah. You know, the amount of work that Microsoft has put into making Electron not slow for VS Code yeah. is incredible. It kind of sucks that they have to put in so much work just to make Electron not be terrible. But at least, you know, it is one of the few Electron apps that yeah. doesn't hog every resource your machine has to offer. Yeah, I think that's right. That's a very interesting point about maybe stagnation is the answer. That we <laughs> everything slows down. Let us just, you know, we've made it right. Now let's make it fast. And yeah. we need everything to stop. But I think a lot of it has crept up on us, right? Our hardware is much, much faster. <laughs> the opportunities yeah, yeah. are there. Yeah. I would offer, you know, along with kind of Bitcoin and Ethereum, you know, can I be controversial and say continuous integration? Like I make one change to my source code, not even a comment. Right? And a minute ago, you were so upset about Bazel and its caching system, which avoids all of this. I wasn't. Well, I mean, that's even the caching is not the answer. But, you know, the fact that people quite merrily go along and they want to build the entire system again because I made one change to one mm. comment. That captures an attitude, right? But yeah. that comes back to this thing that Rich was talking about and Stu talked about as well, which was that you should be able to have a sort of checked in or digested view of testing, for example, so that rebuilding yeah. artifacts should be fine, but it should be a cheap activity. But you don't have to test everything because you kind of know that all these code paths, they're already clean. You know yeah. that you've tested them. 
Definitely opportunities, that's for sure. And I think your tool does some of that as well, doesn't it? Yeah, that's exactly what Bazel does or what we do with well, We're not talking about that. We're talking oh. about replacement. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. But one my, of the things I was going to say... ambiguously referred to. <laughs> <laughs> what I was going to say was part of the sort of like stagnation versus stability thing is I'm going to challenge that because I don't think that these parsers came through stagnation. I think they came through the desire of a big company to reduce its internet bill. The fact that essentially Google wanted to own its own browser, you know, now it's a dominant browser. So why does it make things faster? Well, it wants to improve its JSON parser because it's of its Gmail stuff. So I don't think it's an altruistic or I don't think it's anything to do with stability or anything like that. I think it's purely to do with speed of their applications and their own things. And in the same way as we benefit as Clojureans from their investment in V8 and stuff like that then, you know, we also benefit from these JSON passes, but it's a purely kind of side benefit, I think. It's, it's not an altruistic activity, is what mm-hmm. I'm saying. Yeah, HTML is probably the odd example out there. Maybe XML would be a better example. But I also think some of the optimizations we're starting to see in JavaScript land are coming from the fact that JavaScript is finally slowing down a little bit. There's a lot more opportunity for tree shakers that are getting more and more sophisticated, start breaking down bundle sizes and start analyzing what of this can be run on the server, what can be run on the client, that sort of thing. And it's because it's not changing every single week anymore. But a lot of those things, I mean, you look at the technology, like Babel, I think it is, is one developer yeah. that wrote that. It really? wasn't some wow. big corporation that like funded him for a year. It was just yeah. one developer that wrote the thing. Okay, it caught fire. But back to your point about like big ambitions, that he didn't know it was a problem. He didn't know it was yeah. difficult to do or, you know, something wonderful. Just saw the problem and uh, thought it was bullshit and fixed it, you know. And then got himself a job for life, I guess. Mm. <laughs> you know, one person developing that. I mean, is, that's a common meme that yeah. you know, OpenSSL, that most of the internet infrastructure is kind of built by very, very small numbers of developers and is monetized multi-trillions of dollars by large corporations. Mm-hmm. <sighs> and there isn't a balance, right? There seems to be those two extremes and not much in the middle, right? Mm-hmm. Where is the investment coming for sustainable, organic, maintainable tech? It seems to be that you either have to have huge pockets and deep, you know, corporate sponsors, mm-hmm. or you're kind of working completely unpaid. My viewpoint in terms of like, there's a few things I would do to fix the internet. Like tomorrow, if I was the king of the internet, there's two things I would do. Number one is I would make the companies open source all their code. I don't think that should be a problem. All their code is in Git, just open source it. And that would do two things. Number one, it would make it clear what they're doing. Lots of eyeballs, you know, their competition would be shitting all over each other. Excuse me, bip, bip. But, um, you know, <laughs> it would be fun and games for a few weeks. But definitely open source it. That would be number one, because having all their algorithms hidden behind these shields of secrecy is a disgrace, in my opinion. Mm. We could regulate them. We could look at them. We could find out opportunities to regulate them. And we could find out what evil they're doing, basically, or what good they're doing. You know, I'm sure some of these engineers are doing good things and, you know, it's all fine. But there's certain pockets of that stuff that would be genuinely horrible, as, you know, as Dominic pointed out earlier. Not if they're all uh, using ML to do their horrible algorithms and they don't even know what they're doing. (laughs) That in itself would be interesting. You know, that in itself would also be informative to me. So, number one, open source all of your code and all of your environment. And that's a pretty simple fix, I think. They wouldn't like it, but I think it would be pretty well, you could, you could start by saying that. Don't start by compromising. We just do it. That's <laughs> the number one thing. Yeah. I'm the king. We do it. Okay. <laughs> and then the second thing that we do is we turn off customized ads. So no surveillance of any kind for any justification for ads or anything. You just don't do it. They can make ads. They're just yeah, not. Yeah, they yeah. just can't be localized. They're contact or, sensitive. They're sensitive to the content rather than the... Yeah, so they can be yeah. sensitive to some sort of, you know, broad geography. What about like, you know, you're on Amazon and you buy a car and it suggests certain types of tires because you've just bought a car. Is that oh, no, an yeah. ad or? That's fine. That's not surveillance. That's you've bought the thing. So it's. Well, okay. no, I mean, it is if they know that you bought the thing from another website. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah if, you've bought, I mean, if you bought it from Amazon. Oh, sorry. Yeah. You so you yeah. bought a car from Autocar or whatever oh, yeah, yeah, and then no, you go to Amazon. No, that's, a horrible, yeah. that's obviously a horrible problem. Yeah. And these kind of things, if you open source them and you get rid of these personalized ads, then that kind of thing breaks down. And again, you know, certain people would be out of a job, but I don't care. Yeah. Because you're, you're, king, you're king. king of the internet. Yeah. <laughs> king of the internet. You've got all the, the king's chicken you want. Yeah. <laughs> as a vegan, I would definitely refuse the king's chicken. But yeah. I would sort of go so far as say, which is less far than you, but public bodies should only buy open source. So it should be a complete ban 
proprietary software in any public body, including NHS, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a huge fiasco, you know, in the Irish government where the health authority had a crypto locker, you know, um, ransomware, ransomware attack, closed down all the hospitals, operations were cancelled and things like that. And it was all because they're buying Microsoft because obviously they don't tell you in the papers, but it only happens when you're SMB, what's that, 43 port is open, you know. It's a very, very bad IT practice to buy. And because they're doing it because Microsoft just has the NHS by the balls, right? That's that's island by the balls with the tax arrangements as well. Well, yeah, that's true. But that is the least indirect. But I mean, Microsoft run the NHS X, you know, that they are with all the lobbying and things like that. And it's completely, and Boohoo, like, start sorting it out, making it open source. How many billions does the NHS receive for just its IT? Yes. Why don't you make an NHS Linux distro, number one, right? You can make a Linux distro with five people full-time. You know, you could make a proper one with massive amounts of opportunity for people making medical apps. You have a whole economy with companies producing open source, vetted, audited, all of this stuff, all this economy could be bootstrapped by the NHS. What do they do? They don't. They just give money to Microsoft. So they're just in this, you know, no sympathy at all. Yeah. I have a feeling that the theme of this podcast is spoiling the ocean, solving the world's problems. Stop <laughs> moaning. You've got to have, you've got to have some. Of the... has a lot of power, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, you started no, it, right? No weight on your shoulders. <laughs> thing of the world, of course. I, mean, I was just, but honestly, I think that's just a start, but that would make a very, very different. I agree completely, outcome. yeah. Well, I guess we should probably start to wrap it up. What would you do if you were king of the internet? That should be a series. Absolutely. Give people the power. I mean, don't actually give them the power, but (laughs) (laughs) see what they would do. Just to finish up, we've got the regular toy of the week (laughs) slot. (laughs) So, Roadcaster Pro, what are the pros and what are the cons? The pro is in the name and couldn't think of one for cons there. It's just a box and we don't have to plug a laptop in and set up Pulse Audio and we just have it here oh, in the office. A, that was a bad... Oh, yeah. come on, Alex. Oh, sorry, sorry. We don't have a laptop and we don't have to set up anything on Arch Linux at all. Oh, <laughs> sorry, was that worse? Well, we have a box now. We're big fans of hardware. We can put the mics into it and we can have the different levels and it saves everything to an SD card. It's all hardware and we have every track that goes into a card. It's called a Rodecaster Pro. If you're thinking about putting a podcast together, we highly recommend it. Yeah, and it's got buttons, and I can press them. If I see a funny joke, oh wait, no, that's the wrong. <laughs> there we go. There we yeah. go. So, should we give ourselves a round of applause? So authentic. I think that wraps it that up. Wraps I it want up. to say thank you very much, Dominic and Ray, for joining us. Absolutely, very... it was lovely to have you. Lovely to have a meal and to put the world to rights. And uh, yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. Perfect. Thanks.